if we uh, on the receiving end, on the hosting countries, cannot properly uh, help them when, while they're here, especially for asylum seekers who are not guaranteed permanent residency, then we are just adding to that suffering. Hello and welcome back to Point of Entry, a podcast created and hosted by the Refugee Centre. Join us as we explore the experiences and challenges faced by many newcomers to Canada at various stages in their journeys. Transcending Borders, Point of Entry offers an exclusive into the voices behind the numbers and the policies behind the actions. Travel alongside the Refugee Centre as our alternating hosts, as well as our captivating guests, guide us through the resettlement process in Canada and introduces us to the inner workings of grassroots organizations here in Montreal. My name is Alina, and I'm here to introduce you to our third episode, which was pre-recorded in June as part of our World Refugee Week speaker series. In this episode, I sit down with three members of SIME, a nonprofit McGill University organization composed of interdisciplinary health science students providing hands-on public health services to newcomers. So, without any further ado... Let's get into it. All right. So before we begin introducing you to our esteemed guests, we would like to acknowledge that the land the Refugee Center is located on has unceded Indigenous lands. We respect the Kanagahaga Nation as custodians of the lands and waters on which we gather today and the Zhejiang Territory as the gathering place of the First Nations. Hello, everyone, and welcome to our International Refugee Week virtual conference presented by the Refugee Center. This week, we'll be honoring and celebrating the strength, contribution, and creativity of refugees, asylum seekers, and immigrants within our communities. While this should not be limited to a single week, through this conference, we are hoping to bring awareness, educate, and give a platform to empower others in their support of refugees. My name is Alina Murad, and I will be your interviewer for this discussion. I'm a fourth-year political science and immigration studies student at Concordia University, and I'm currently interning at the Refugee Center, and I'm very excited to be here. An admirable welcome to our guests, Lena Siafa, Arthaga Salvarajan, and Dr. Trigwin from the student-led organization SIM. Lena is a second-year medical student at McGill University. She works as a health navigation coordinator with SIM, an interprofessional team of social work, medicine, nursing, and dietetic students, sharing the common goal of diminishing healthcare gaps experienced by asylum seekers in Montreal. Arthaga is the SIME co-director and workshop coordinator undertaking the coordination of SIME's interprofessionally delivered tasks with a specific focus on SIME's health promotional workshop. Lastly, we have Dr. Juan Carlos Trigwin, a family doctor doing general practice in the Community Health Center, or CLSC, since 2002. He gives special attention to the issue of access to care for asylum seekers who make up a significant portion of the local residents, the majority from South Asia. As of October 2018, the medical group of his CLSC is not accepting new patients regardless of their migration status, so he has tried to set up a screening clinic for asylum seekers since July 2018. Thank you all for joining us here today. Um, I would like to start things off by asking, why do you feel that your topic about discrepancies in the Quebec healthcare system is important to talk about today? We just feel that, first of all, there's a lot of improvement um, that we could all do when it comes to um, health care of asylum seekers and refugees in Quebec. And uh, the more awareness we can bring about the topic, um, the better it would be uh, for everyone, hopefully. 
Um, Arthika, do you want to continue? Yeah, definitely. So I guess like going a little bit back to like Sims original roots, um, it was identified that like a lot of like the barriers that like uh, came up was because there was such like a lack of knowledge on like health specific topics or different um, resources that were available to the asylum seeking and refugee population um, within like the healthcare system. And that's why we decided to like create SIM. And that's why um, like SIM was originally giving the two branches of services that we do today, which is the health navigation services, as well as the health promotional workshops. And at the end of the day, um, while doing these different services, we realized that there were so many different um, points of information and communication that was misinformed, um, that the population was just not aware of like what kind of health rights that they do have. As well on the healthcare side of things, as medical students, and I'm sure Dr. Shergun, you can expand on this. Um, there's a lot of like misinformation um, on our side as well as to like who can take uh, refugee or asylum seekers within their clinic or who can give these services. So really that's why we wanted to talk about the topic today um, to be able to bring awareness because we really do believe that bringing awareness is the first step to be able to bring active change as well. I would just add that uh, I think the UNHCR brought out statistics that now we have about 80 million uh, forcibly displaced persons around the world, uh, many of these uh, whom are children. Uh, and for me, what always comes back to my head is that sort of phrase, uh, local is global. So I know there's lots of global pressures uh, that are leading uh, people to uh, move from their countries to another country. Uh, but um, the students and I, what we're trying to deal with is the local how does all of that global issue translate into a local problem? I think uh, the asylum seekers and refugees have to go through lots of hardships to get to a place like Canada. And then once they land here, there's a whole new set of obstacles that the students are describing, which makes um, accessing health services and so social services incredibly complex. Uh, even the healthcare professionals in the system themselves are often trying to, struggling to try and understand where can we refer patients, what services are available. Uh, so I think that, that has to be mentioned. And then I think from recent events, um, part of the global and the local issues are the hate crimes and the intolerance that we are seeing uh, in many countries and even uh, in our country, which we always think is, uh, is uh, spared of, of all of these uh, sort of um, horrible human qualities that we sometimes express. Um, so I think that by addressing access to care, we are also addressing issues of discrimination locally, but also globally. Um, and the global issues which have really upset me is that we see that borders are now being policed. We are seeing asylum seekers uh, not being allowed into countries uh, to get sanctuary, which is against international law. Um, we are seeing rescue boats uh, being stopped from saving people who are in sinking ships in the Mediterranean. Uh, the other day I heard the U.S. Vice President Kalama Harris uh, basically say, do not come here uh, to all people who are trying to seek safety in the United States. And she repeated that three times in her speech. So I think this is all the backdrop, not to mention the war on terror and the violence that went in, on in Iraq, Afghanistan, Syria, and there will be many more. And these are the things that are fueling people uh, to move around the world. And if we, uh, on the receiving end, on the hosting countries, cannot properly uh, help them when, while they're here, 
especially for asylum seekers who are not guaranteed permanent residency, then we are just adding to that suffering. Uh, and we believe, and I think this is the reason why we went into the healthcare professions, we believe that we're trying to, we're, we're doing what we're doing to help people. Um, and uh, so uh, this is the challenge uh, that, uh, that we face uh, from our professions, but there's many other professions that also make a huge difference uh, to asylum seekers and resettled refugees. Wow, there, there were so many important things that you all touched on. Um, I really like that you sort of mentioned the interconnectivity of the different problems that refugees and asylum seekers face. Now, if we were to, say, to sort of focus on the local of the host country, in your experience, what do you feel are the main discrepancies in the Quebec healthcare system? I guess I could get started with that. Um, so through the different services that SIM has been offering the asylum seeking community, um, namely health navigation sessions or health informational workshops um, and information drop-in sessions, um, we've noticed the following things. First of all, there is a lack of information about uh, the services that are covered or not by the IFHP, which is the uh, federal uh, healthcare coverage that asylum seekers um, have access to. And um, so, for example, asylum seekers, usually they don't really know um, what dentists would accept them and whether or not dental healthcare is covered by the IFHB. Um, optometrists, um, there's, I remember one of the first asylum seekers that I met, um, she was an elderly woman who had lost her glasses and had no idea where to, where to get new glasses and how much that would cost and whether, whether or not that would be out of pocket or not. Um, and it could be knowledge about like which clinics um, accept asylum seekers. Um, unfortunately, a lot of the healthcare providers um, don't really know what the IFHP is. And so when asylum seekers don't have the RAMQ coverage, they're either turned away or they're asked uh, to pay out of pocket for uh, services that would uh, were supposed to be covered uh, by the federal government. Um, and so that's one thing, the lack of information about which services are available and which uh, are covered. Um, second, um, there's a language barrier uh, that asylum seekers have to face and it's hard to have access to a translator sometimes so um, a lot of them have to resort to informal um, ways of, of translating and that's either by bringing let's say a relative with them or a friend with their with them or a child uh, which is not really optimal uh, for confidentiality purposes or for disclosure purposes and uh, it could lead to for example let's say if the parent if the parent wants to share something and the child has to listen to it and the child might be re-traumatized in the process of like translating for, for their parent. Uh, so translation services are not optimal right now in the province and uh, that could be something uh, that could be improved on significantly. Um, and uh, a third point would be uh, the lack of knowledge about health-specific topics. Um, Arthiga would be better placed to, to talk about this than me, so I'll let her continue from here. Thank you for the segue, Lina. Um, but yeah, so when we um, conducted our workshops in person, we really did it with like a broad range of topics based on the interest of what like asylum seeking population wanted to learn more about. Um, so we actually got this one request on uh, how to access different abortion clinics and whether or not as an asylum seeker, can you access abortion clinics? Are you, um, uh, do you have access to birth control? And 
these are topics in certain cultures and certain populations that are very taboo and almost like stereotyped. But because of these stereotypes, there's also a lot of misconceptions and misinformation that arises from this. So um, when we were going into the workshop, we were prepared to face that um, those like questions, but we were not ready to face the amount of backlash we would have with like the different community members because it was just so strongly rooted within them to like, you know, not discuss specific healthcare topics. Um, and unfortunately that led to like specific people not seeking out services as well. So it definitely made us realize that you have to be very, very culturally sensitive when approaching these topics. And I think that cultural sensitivity is something that should be taught within um, our different like healthcare programs as well because it's um, so, so, so pertinent when we're dealing with the, the asylum-seeking and refugee population. From what I see uh, as trying to deliver care from a family doctor perspective on the ground, uh, some of the issues uh, that could be perhaps fixed in the system that would facilitate uh, would, would be to have a more uh, systematic approach to asylum seekers arriving to the city. And I'm contrasting to uh, what was done and done well for the Syrian uh, uh, resettled refugees that arrived uh, to Montreal uh, around 2017 or so. Uh, they had uh, teams working at the old Royal Victoria Hospital uh, where there were nurses and nurse practitioners doing triages of families that were arriving and that were being resettled in different neighborhoods of Montreal. So there was a very um, organized approach. Um, it was also a lot in the media. It obviously uh, was a very good political capital for the uh, liberal federal government. Um, but that aside, uh, it was still uh, well-organized and well-run and families were resettled. I have a feeling that we should also be able to do something similar for asylum seekers. Uh, I think in 2018, there was something like uh, 28,000 asylum seekers that came to Quebec. Um, and uh, or, or even mostly they come to Montreal anyway, but that represents a very small percentage. So people might complain and say, well, why should we invest anything more for a group uh, that only is like less than 1% of the total population of a city or of a province? Uh, and I would just say that it would uh, it would make a difference for those individuals, but it would also uh, probably help the economy. People would be able to get jobs uh, that were appropriate for their level of training. Uh, things would there would be positive uh, positive results for all of society. Um, so I think that the the hosting countries uh, and the hosting provinces and cities so it should develop a system that works more efficiently. Uh, the other issue that I see is that uh, the asylum seekers have a, a, a separate healthcare coverage, different from people who are permanent residents in our province in Quebec. So they. I think that if we were also able to streamline this so that, for example, asylum seekers carry the same provincial health care card as permanent residents and just had like a numerical code added on to it, uh, then uh, the asylum seekers would have would face fewer obstacles in entering a walk-in clinic or a dental clinic or any kind of clinic, uh, because then that numerical code would transfer the work of who, who gets billed or who has to pay for this that is given to uh, a higher level of uh, sort of ministerial responsibility. And then that gets shifted to the federal. So all that work gets taken out of the hands of the healthcare providers and it's put up into the government and then they take care of that. That's what I would like to see happen. Uh, I think it should be an easy solution, but uh, 
policymakers and other people would probably give me all kinds of reasons as to why that is uh, impossible to do. So these are some of the more broad uh, barriers that I think we could address if we wanted to. And the cynical side of me says, well, people don't want to fix the problem because they don't want to make it easier for people uh, to come to Canada. Hey, guys, it's Phil, and I'm here to tell you what's up. This month at the Centre, we have a series of new and exciting wellness services, starting with individual art therapy sessions in collaboration with the Montreal Therapy Centre. We will be supporting refugees and newcomer clients with 10 free individual art therapy sessions, and the service can occur in person or over Zoom. This incredible opportunity is for those looking to be expressive and creative while showing off their art skills. Also, we've just launched our coffee and conversation circles where you can pour your favorite cup of joe while improving your language skills. Who doesn't love coffee and chatting? You can sign up for our services at our website or social media. In other news, TRC is also proud to announce our new Community Talks project, a series of workshops aimed to support organizations in refugee and immigrant-related issues. Stay tuned uh, on our social medias to sign up and learn more about our upcoming dates. Thank you for listening in and enjoy the rest of Point of Entry. Maybe you could expand a little more on what what you feel needs to be changed internally within the Quebec healthcare system in order to sort of serve and include refugees and asylum seekers better. I could get started and Dr. Chugwin would uh, take him from there because uh, he has more uh, experience on the ground. Um, but on, on SIM end, we feel like, first of all, uh, there could be a greater education about the IFHP, which is the Asylum Seekers Healthcare Coverage. Um, so if, um, let's say, at our level of training, so in universities and in different like healthcare programs and social services programs, just talking about the IFHP and explaining what it is would go a long way in terms of like um, service providers in the future being able to understand what the asylum seekers saying and um, address their needs properly. So they would know, for example, what is covered or not and give that information to the asylum seeker. They would not um, arbitrarily turn away um, asylum seekers that are coming to seek services because they tell them that they're not covered by the uh, by, by by their plan when in fact it would be. Um, so um, I think that would be, that's one big obstacle that asylum seekers face when they go to access services and um, by educating the future uh, healthcare professionals and service providers um, would hopefully decrease that barrier for for uh, asylum seekers in the future. And um, as we touched on it a little bit previously also, um, making it easier to access formal translation methods, um, either like translation services uh, by the phone that I think Dr. Sherwin's clinic is already working uh, with, but not. Uh, I'm not sure whether all the clinics have access to it. That could uh, be an easy fix and um, or in-person uh, translation services or even um, apps that are now developed, then of course we need to check confidentiality purposes, but um, there are now apps uh, that are being developed that could um, give you access to a translator um, via the phone uh, rather quickly. Um, and Dr. Tripp, we can add uh, from here. So there, there's a history between myself and the medical students organization, uh, SIM. Uh, this organization, the original idea was that uh, interdisciplinary uh, students uh, from uh, medical schools, nursing, dietetics, social services from McGill uh, would form sort of these interdisciplinary teams that we could use 
in an asylum screening clinic like the one I run uh, inside a community health center in the CLSC. Uh, we went with this idea to our institutions, uh, both McGill University and our large health institution in which we work. Uh, unfortunately, we were not able to convince them that this was uh, an innovative and amazing idea. And so they didn't support us. And so therefore, the medical students have followed this stream of doing health navigation and outreach directly to asylum seekers. And they've been doing an excellent job at that. And I think they're they're laying the, found, the, the foundation for a future project where maybe uh, all of that work can become part of the curriculum of um, uh, different um, departments within McGill University in the, in the health professions. That would be the, the long game. Um, and uh, I think that in terms of smaller projects, what the students are doing, they can probably stimulate future cohorts of students who are taught about how the interim federal health plan works and to basically do different visits to clinics, uh, medical clinics, dental clinics, hospitals, where they present on the interim federal health plan, uh, which supports medications and other services for asylum seekers and sell the idea uh, just every year, do the same thing, uh, do the rounds of all the clinics so that you really push that this, this uh, program exists and that asylum seekers can be treated and given care to. The other thing that is an obstacle, which is also a, a broader obstacle, is that uh, doctors who begin their practice once they finish their training, they are restricted in where they can practice uh, and what, what type of practice they engage in. And this is a sort of a, a, sort of a health ministerial uh, regulation. Uh, so we call them PREMS. Uh, and so it would be great if uh, providing care to vulnerable groups such as asylum seekers were to be recognized as uh, something that the government would uh, allow. And so future physicians who are working could then spend and dedicate a lot of their time to the specific population in Montreal uh, and in areas outside of Montreal, if there is a sufficient population of asylum seekers there to warrant it. So changing a little bit how uh, physicians are allowed to work uh, in the province and focusing the need on certain groups such as asylum seekers, but other vulnerable groups could also be identified and making this uh, sort of like a a way for a young physician uh, uh, to to be able to start a practice in that sort of uh, in that sort of field. The the final thing in terms about interpretation, which is usually a, a key feature of, of providing care, uh, because you have to get. Uh, the history from uh, the patient, for example, and you need an interpreter to, to get the accurate amount of information to then provide care. There are systems that are publicly funded, like uh, the Banque d'Interprète for uh, uh, publicly funded institutions like CLSCs, uh, but then there's other privately funded ones like the telephone interpreter system, Rio Network. So um, Interpreter uh, services should also be made more available uh, for publicly funded uh, clinics and even for group practices of doctors, just give them the ability to get an interpreter at a very low cost or free so that taking on a patient who doesn't speak French or English is not seen as a huge barrier. Um, and so just making uh, interpreter services more available uh, would also be a way of improving the delivery of care to people who are, parts, are from parts of the world where English and French are not spoken. And now for your In the Know segment with Lauren from TRC. A new campaign has started in the refugee rights realm titled Welcome to Canada, spearheaded by Amnesty International and Human Rights Watch, acting as a call out for arrangements with the federal government that let them detain asylum seekers and refugee claimants in provincial jails. The campaign aims to put an end to these inhumane actions. 
You can check out more with the hashtag Welcome to Canada and see how you can call attention to this. In more positive news, a new pilot project has been created by the Canadian organization Hand Voice, focusing on North Korean human rights that will allow Canadians to privately sponsor and resettle certain North Korean refugees. Hand Voice states that 80% of North Korean refugees are women and their children, who are often at significant risk of sexual and gender-based violence. Pushing for a rapid resettlement of families facilitated through Hand Voice and the Immigration Refugee Board. If you'd like to learn more, head to Hand Voice or learn about the refugee Center's very own private sponsorship program on our website. Thanks for listening in and bringing you back to Point of Entry. Right now, with working, I guess, around all of these systemic or institutional barriers, what kind of challenges does this sort of present to you when you're trying to provide healthcare or support to refugees and asylum seekers? Um, so I'll speak from the health navigation perspective. Um, just because we've been talking about health navigation sessions a lot, but I didn't give you a quick debrief of what it is. So it's basically these individual appointments that our team sets up with asylum seekers. And um, together we um, we screen the asylum seekers for um, healthcare needs and social needs. And then we refer them to the appropriate organizations in their community um, that would be uh, a best fit to address these needs. Um, and so uh, in these sessions, uh, we have either a medical or nursing student to address more of the, um, refer more on the health side of things. And uh, we also have a social work students for all the different um, social needs. And uh, we also have a dietetic student uh, that would conduct a, a screening of dietary needs and refer to the appropriate services as well. So because we're students, we're not allowed to give any professional advice, but we act as an intermediary between uh, the asylum seeker and the different services that are available to them, and we help them navigate the very complicated system. Um, and so one of the earliest challenges, so when we started uh, doing these health navigation sessions, it was before COVID times, so it was in person at the William Hingston, Hingston Center in the Parc Extension uh, community. And uh, one of our biggest challenges was actually reaching the asylum seeking population. Um, so a lot of them didn't have an internet access. Um, and so reaching them to let them know for services was very difficult. We're very lucky to um, collaborate with Ressources Action Alimentation in Parc Extension. And they were amazing at, um, um, raising awareness um, about the services that we're delivering to the asylum seekers that are coming to their uh, community organization to collect food items or furnitures or, or clothings. Um, so a big challenge is actually reaching out to the asylum seekers. And um, the solution was uh, collaborating with different organizations um, that they're involved with asylum seekers and kind of like building a network with each other so that we can each uh, help each other out and better serve the needs of uh, the community. Um, and I think I can also talk about the challenges when it comes to workshops. For sure. Um, so similar to what Lena um, iterated, it was like, um, I think a lot of our challenges like became a huge problem in the pandemic arose just because like our main mode of communication was that like, you know, word of mouth, meeting them in person, being able to like, just like, rec like recruit individuals as we were walking into the center. Um, and so when the pandemic hit, we really like lost that like connection directly to the community. And I would say the health promotional workshops really did suffer on that aspect because it was on one hand, yes, it was really difficult to have individuals with like internet access. But even on top of that, like there are so many problems that the asylum seeking or refugee population faced that were just exemplified by the pandemic. A lot of people lost their jobs. A lot of people didn't necessarily have like money to bring food to the table. And so we... Um, 
in terms of the promotional workshops, like it was just so difficult to be able to even coordinate people to attend a workshop, let alone deliver a workshop. Um, so to be able to mitigate that, what we ended up doing is that we didn't want to like necessarily just let go of the information. We wanted to still be able to like provide that information. So we created the workshops and we publicized them on like more online platforms, but are also promoting it through different social media platforms that a lot of um, community members have like uh, resorted to. So like, for, for example, Facebook, we're in the midst of communications um, with different organizations that could uh, give us access to different WhatsApp uh, platforms that a lot of asylum seekers use. Um, but it it, it definitely the pandemic really did exemplify the fact that like if you aren't directly in contact with the individual, it's difficult to reach them. Um, I guess like a second issue, quote unquote, that we've had was that our at least in terms of health promotional workshops, it was a super targeted topic. So we talk about osteoporosis. We'd come as like an interprofessional group of students, um, do our research and provide this information and try to like navigate the different questions that they had for us without overstepping the professional boundary. But at the same time, there were still like such specific questions that we didn't necessarily have answers to. Like, oh, my kid is X amount of years old. And like, what are the guidelines of like when they're supposed to stop drinking like milk, breast milk versus like cow milk, et cetera, et cetera. So um, what we've sort of been trying to pilot at the moment, and we're sort of doing this potentially in collaboration with the Refugee Center, um, is these uh, drop-in information sessions where essentially we have like a day that's like um, specifically uh, specifically dedicated to uh, addressing any of the asylum-seeking population's question, where they can either call us, they could message us through Facebook or different platforms, email us, or enter into a Zoom call. And we take one week to do our research, contact different community um, organizations or professionals, and give back that um, give back that information to them so they have access to that information. And it's been working pretty well. It's still in its pilot stages, so we're testing things out. Um, and I don't know if Dr. Shergwin, if you want to like add on to that. So I think the question is about <clears throat> the barriers that we face in, in doing our day-to-day uh, projects or work. Um, I would just say here that uh, the community organizations uh, like Refugee Center, Welcome Collective, uh, other organizations that are more official like Prida, which is the official uh, uh, provincial system, uh, a body that has to look after the needs of asylum workers. All of these uh, organizations help us address our barriers. Uh, what is complicated, though, is to keep an updated list, a repertoire of all of these organizations, what they do. Um, if they're still open for business, uh, so this is this is one challenge. But uh, obviously, our barriers are made. Uh, um, a lot easier to deal with uh, thanks to community organizations. Um, what I see as a family doctor who is trying to run this uh, primary care um, basic screening clinic for asylum seekers, uh, at first it was mostly intended just for people living in park extension, but now I've begun to open it up to people coming from anywhere. The big problem is identifying the need, uh, identifying the individuals or their families uh, that uh, that need to be seen uh, by a doctor. Uh, the second thing I have to do is I have to uh, convince them about primary care screening. So in other words, looking for a problem before it actually becomes a huge problem in their bodies. Uh, so for example, uh, 
osteoporosis was mentioned. Well, you screen um, for it so they have to. You don't uh, end up sort of broken sell the idea to an asylum seeker. I know you don't feel like you are ill, but I want to screen your body for diabetes or hypertension or different infections that you may have carried uh, for many years from your country. So you might have hepatitis B chronic infection in your body or hepatitis C. If I check for these and I identify them, then I can help you uh, get the adequate services and support. Um, I think the issue of taboo was also mentioned uh, about contraception. Just the general health, uh, mental health issues are, are taboo in many uh, cultures and many societies. And so uh, addressing mental health care issues is a huge uh, uh, barrier because the patients and their communities don't want to talk about this. When you're in, in private in a, uh, in a confidential space uh, in the examining room, you can bring these issues up. Um, there is a lot of stress uh, for asylum seekers during their asylum seeking claim. There is a long period of about four years where they live uh, in total limbo of not knowing if they're going to get permanent residency. Many of the families I see have had to uh, endure family separation because they brought only one child over and they left two behind with family back home. Uh, and so they have to basically have four years without uh, being able to uh, see or hug their children, they might be able to communicate through WhatsApp and with other media, but they're not able to actually have their children with them. So this creates huge pressure. And then the other issue is the whole sort of legal aspect of uh, making an asylum claim, which uh, we as healthcare professionals, we feel, well, that's not our domain, but it's obviously something that's creating huge mental health pressures uh, on the asylum seekers. So this is where uh, working with other organizations is, is absolutely essential. Uh, and where education seems to, again, be the order of the day. Just uh, on Friday, I had a, a social uh, social worker come and tell me that there's a, a big need for uh, legal aid uh, or uh, the lawyers who provide free legal aid to asylum seekers to come and give a presentation at our institution to the different healthcare providers, just so that we understand what is the process. And I still don't know uh, what is the gold standard in terms of legal representation for an asylum seeker in Montreal. What are the things that should be checked off in terms of them getting proper legal representation? And what are the danger signs when an asylum seeker is not getting proper representation for their asylum case? And just speaking to the asylum seekers, what are their needs? Um, helping them deal with their barriers. They mentioned work, like getting work permits. They mentioned daycares to which they don't have an access to subsidized daycare uh, for asylum seekers. So they bring up these issues all the time. And different uh, community organizations uh, do try and provide some form of service to support women. Um, South Asian Women's Community Center. Um, there's Africa Femina. There's different groups that provide sort of like uh, child uh, sort of services to a a limited degree, uh, but these are things that can make a huge difference uh, for asylum seekers who are adapting to a new a new life in a in a strange city. Uh, so these are some of the barriers that we have to deal with, and we need to do it uh, uh, among different groups of people uh, with a sort of a, a common vision of what uh, good healthcare would be. Right now, similar to what you're just touching on there, Dr. Chergwin. What are the, what are ways for community members to sort of support refugees and asylum seekers in this? I think it's like doing things that we're doing right now, which is communicating uh, across uh, across groups. I find that uh, in healthcare, uh, but this 
sort of reflects also in in other in other uh, aspects of how our societies run. We are often working in silos. So we have information silos, we have activity silos, we have funding silos. We we are there's different groups that compete against each other because they're 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 doing the same kind of work and trying to reach to the same population. So I think what we have to do is is recognize that we we have to get out of our silos and talk to each other, uh, realize that uh, each of us probably has uh, something to offer that might be a bit different from another group, and then try and work together for a common cause of delivering uh, appropriate, uh, good healthcare uh, and support uh, to asylum seekers. So it's, it's trying to break, break our own institutional communication barriers uh, if we truly want to try and reform the system and mend the system, make it better. Absolutely. Now, before we wrap up, unfortunately, do you, does anybody have any last comments or thoughts that they'd like to leave us with? I think like just before we wrap up, I'd just like to give a, like a huge, huge, huge shout out to like all of the different community partners that we've been working with um, throughout these like past couple of years. So Resource Axala Mantasia that was mentioned at William Hingston Center. Um, they've been doing like food baskets to provide real COVID relief for like the different families. So like anyone can go and support them. It'd be awesome. Um, the Welcome Collective, Samuel Center for Connectiveness, um, Maison Bleu, Affective Femina, they've all just been absolutely incredible in helping us. And we definitely want to pay that forward to them too so um hopefully it'll be linked somewhere but if not then you can always just contact us and we'll give you the connections if you want to get involved and sort of to play off of what dr shergan was saying as well i think um, especially for university students it's often um very difficult to sort of see outside of the bubble of like university studying and living your own life um but i think lena and i would both agree that getting involved is the biggest way that you can learn and educate yourself. And sometimes we might approach these situations um, from an almost like a savior complex way of like trying to fix the solution. But I would really, really, really urge you guys to just like go get involved and listen. Cause I think that listening perspective is what um, is lacking. And when you listen, that's when you hear all of the different like barriers but also all of the different strengths and the beauties that um, um, these individuals that bring to our community. So I urge you to get involved. Amazing. Well, thank you all for tuning in to our special World Refugee Week conference. It was such a pleasure having you all here with us and tell us more about your organization's sign. In the meantime, we hope that you enjoyed this meeting as much as we did. Thank you very much. Yeah, 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 yeah.